So we're at the end of Genesis, at the beginning of Exodus, and just by coincidence, which is of course not a kosher word, everything I've been seeing and listening to has been talking about the law. Listen to Ron Dart, and he had several programs this week talking about Torah, law. He's saying that somebody's asking him, is fasting mandatory on Yom Kippur and those kinds of questions? And his answer was, if it doesn't mean anything to you, no. If it doesn't mean something to you, yeah, it's in the Bible. Talked about rolling your own morality, especially in the case of abortion. And then Doug Wilson, the Calvinist guy up in Idaho, was talking about the law. And one of the things he was talking about is the context of all the cultural ferment that we've got going on right now. And he says, you know, all of this getting rid of your history is a violation of the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother and it will go well with you. And precisely what's happening in our culture is that's being done away with, the father and our mother being our ancestors. And we're starting over. So everybody's talking about the Torah. And then Wilson pointed me at an article. I don't know who this guy is. He's on Substack. And he wrote an article called The Great Awakening. That's also talking about the Torah. So, I, you know, I catch right on. And this article is saying that what we're seeing right now in our culture is, in fact, a religious revival. It is a secular religious revival, which may seem like a oxymoron, but it's not. The motivation here is spiritual. The implementation is secular. There have been, depending on how you count, three or four great awakenings in the United States. The first one was at the beginning of the 1700s, 1730s and so forth, and that was the Puritans, the Cotton Mathers and so forth, and the result of that was our revolution. The Great Awakening in the United States was the seeds of the revolution against Great Britain. The second one was at the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century. And that one resulted in the seeding of new sects. That's when we got Mormonism and so forth. It also was the thing that fomented the Civil War. The third one, according to this guy, was the Civil Rights Revolution in the 60s. And what happened there, of course, is the Constitution got changed de facto and it got rid of freedom of association. The government now was empowered to tell you who you must and must not associate with. Now, the characteristics of a religious revival, and I'm going to read this from Wikipedia, that great theological source. A great Awakening made religion intensely personal to the average person by fostering a deep sense of spiritual conviction and of personal sin and a need for redemption and by encouraging introspection and a commitment to a new standard of personal morality. And this Great Awakening, this great sin, is slavery and being white. Now, in traditional Christianity, the great sin is being a child of Adam, which is all of us. That's not narrowed. The great sin is now being white. 
And the great sin is now this nation once did slavery. And what you see is acts of penance before an unforgiving God. How many people have you seen groveling when they have run afoul of something? And groveling doesn't do any good. They are still cast into the outer darkness. And the other one is we have blasphemy laws. There are words you cannot say. You have to say the N-word, like a kindergartner. You can't say the actual word because that's not permitted. And in fact, the founder of Papa John's Pizza got fired by the board of directors for using the N-word, talking against the use of the N-word. In other words, he's saying, you can't use this word, but he actually said the word. And his board of directors fired him. So what we're talking about here is blasphemy laws. We have new saints. St. Floyd. Serious. Serious. We have statues being erected to St. Floyd. We have holidays being proposed for St. Floyd. Now, if you look at St. Floyd, the man was a convicted felon. He was a porn actor. He was a drug addict. And he had fathered a number of children that whom he never met. So by any traditional standard of morality, this guy is not a saint. But this new religion has made him a saint. So what I'm trying to tell you is what we're dealing with here is a religious conflict within the United States. This is entirely religious. So on one side, these people have this religious impulse and they've got this deep conviction of personal sin. Oh, I'm white or my nation had slaves or whatever and I am so terribly sorry and I'm abasing myself because of my sin of being part of this as opposed as I say to traditional Christianity where we are part of Adam and everybody partakes in sin no no not in this religion one of the things that I've talked about in the past is that one of the characteristics of this new religion is there isn't any fixed law. The law is simply what whoever the high priests of this thing are decide on a particular day is the law. There was a case where some high school cheerleader was taped 10, 15 years ago saying something against the new religion. I don't remember what she said. Somebody who hated her had videotaped it. And so when she got accepted to a college, this person who hated her sent that video to the college admission board and her acceptance was rescinded for something she had done as a young girl years and years ago. The point here is that the laws of this new religion change. You don't know from day to day when you're going to be hauled up before the Inquisition, made to do an act of penance and not be forgiven. But the thing I want to emphasize here is this is a religious impulse. The United States is a religious people. The fact that lots of them don't believe in God anymore doesn't get rid of the religious mechanism and the fervor that goes with it when that religious mechanism is aroused. In fact, one of the things that I find fascinating, Doug Wilson up in Idaho said, well, when somebody accuses you of white privilege, what you should do is say, and why should I care? And that goes to the heart of the matter. 
I haven't sinned in any way that my religion regards as sin. The fact that your religion regards it as a sin is a matter of indifference to me. I don't worship at your church. So, all this, of course, goes back to the garden where God gave us one rule. Don't eat of the tree. And we couldn't even do that. But what happened is we got the knowledge of good and evil, which is to say we started making our own rules. And what the book of Genesis is, is a case study of humanity under its own rules. And we have over and over and over again all of the pathologies that happen to humanity when we're operating under human rules as opposed to God's rules. And the book of Exodus begins 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. That's the setup for the book of Exodus. Coming out of the book of Genesis, what's happened is Joseph, by personal relationship with Pharaoh, has secured a good deal for his people. Once that personal relationship is over, Joseph is dead, and we have a new king that arises and doesn't know Joseph, the next thing that happens is Israel is now enslaved. So the rules change, because the rules are man's rules, and as long as Pharaoh liked Joseph, hey, I'll take care of your family. You know, it's sort of like uh, you're in Chicago. Well, if you know these people, then then it's going to be all right. But if you don't know these people, well, then it's not going to be so good for you. That's what's going on. And what Genesis does is describes that whole process, and then Exodus is the great reset. Because what happens in Exodus is God reaches into Egypt, takes Israel out without any help from them. That's, of course, salvation by grace. Takes them through the Red Sea, baptizes them, brings them up on the other side, and brings them to the mountain where he gives them Torah. And what Torah is, is teaching and instruction on how to avoid going back into slavery. What Torah is, is God says, if you live this way, things will be good and you won't go into slavery. If you live that way, you're going to wind up being enslaved again. That's the whole purpose of Torah. For those who come from a Sunday background, Torah was not designed to save anybody. God saves people. The Torah doesn't. Torah is simply, this is how you live to stay out of slavery. This is how you live to have a good society. God is making up the rules because God is the creator as opposed to man making up the rules, which is whatever I think I want. So the dividing line is the book of Exodus. Now, one of the things that I have said several times today, the problem with human created law is it's capricious. And what we're seeing in the Great Awakening here is there's no consistency. You can be just fine today, and then you can say or do something tomorrow, and all of a sudden you're a non-person. They cut off your 
Facebook account, they throw you off of YouTube, they send you away and fire you from your job. You become a non-person. And no matter what acts of penance you do to this vengeful God of the new religion, it is never enough because this God is unforgiving. So, this instability in the law creates fear. Everybody walks around on eggshells in fear that they are going to be found in violation of one of these rules that they didn't know the day before. And the thing about Torah is it is coming from outside of the system. Torah is not subject to human whim. Now, one of the things that we have over and over and over again is the implementation of Torah is subject to human whim. And what happens to Israel about every 20 minutes is they go off the rails and go out and wind up God having to jerk them back, sometimes sending them into exile, sometimes sending them a prophet or a judge. But the fact is, we're really not very good at it as humans. But the thing about the Torah is it doesn't change. Which means when you violate the Torah, you know that you are out of bounds. Whereas when you violate the laws of this new religion, you don't know that you're out of bounds until somebody jerks you up and turns you into a non-person. Now, we are in a religious conflict. And it's really important that the people of God recognize what the problem is. The problem is we have two competing religions. What this secular religion is depending on is the fact that our civilization was built by Christians and we have the vestiges of Christian behavior in this society which is sort of keeping things together in the midst of the chaos. That's the whole business of you have violated something. Well, if I didn't know the rule, what the heck difference is it? Yeah, but you've got a Christian morality behind you, and I've just accused you of sinning. So you need to be contrite. In other words, what this does is appeals to a residual Christianity in the population. And that's why, as I say, Doug Wilson says... When somebody accuses you of white privilege or whatever, you say, why should I care about that? Because that is not a sin in my religion. That may be a sin in your religion, but I don't worship at your church. So accusing me of sinning against your religion, which I do not follow, is a non-event for me. But what they're counting on is, oh, you've offended me. Oh, well, I'm terribly sorry. I didn't mean to do that. It's so forth. And that's a residual of Christianity that they're counting on. You can't beat something with nothing. So if you're going to beat this new religion, the only way you're going to beat it is with another religion. You've got to fight it in the same arena. So if you're going against a religion and you're doing logic, somebody accuses you of the current thing is whiteness, and you are guilty because of whiteness, it does no good whatsoever, which most people try, to say, I've never owned slaves. I don't have a racist bone in my body. 
I'm not responsible for anything. You never were a slave, and I never owned any slave. What the heck's the problem? You're arguing with logic. Logic has no benefit in a religious argument. What we're dealing with is belief. We're not dealing with something that's logical. So to argue back logically is a waste of breath. And furthermore, will simply be regarded as evidence that you do not worship at their church. Therefore, you are a non-person. You are a heretic. You're outside. Well, if you're going to be outside of their church, stay outside of their church and say, my God does not regard what you're accusing me of as a sin. Pound sand. The only way you can fight a religious movement is with a counter-religious movement. Which means you have got to have more faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob than they have in whatever this vengeful, unforgiving God that they are trying to worship is. Now, some positive notes. COVID actually turns out to be positive. The great fraud. Because what's happened is lots and lots of parents have been forced to stay home with their children and watch their children be taught on Zoom. And they are seeing firsthand what crap is being taught in their public schools. And what you're seeing all over the country is parents rising up and going to school board meetings and just raising holy hell. And in fact, in Loudoun County in Virginia, which is a Washington Beltway county, the school board finally had to declare the whole thing is a riot and this is an illegal meeting and it called the police because the parents wouldn't shut up. That's a positive, unintended consequence of the great lockdown. All of a sudden, people are waking up and saying, whoa, wait a minute here. This is not something innocent and benign. This is something that needs to be squashed. And at the moment, there are more of us than there are of them. The problem is, more of us have been passive all this time. Sort of go along, get along, and don't make waves. And the church is, in fact, divided into two churches. You have the church that believes in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and believes in some version of the Torah without emendation. Sunday churches will say, you know, it's grace and all that kind of stuff. But at the bedrock, they've still got the Ten Commandments. They still revere and honor those. And then you've got another group of churches which say, well, love is love and it doesn't matter and come on in and whatever. Those churches are not much help, quite frankly, in this particular fight. Because the fight is religious, and we have to decide whose law do we follow. Do we follow the law of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which comes to us from our Creator, who knows how we should organize ourselves and behave in order to live a good life? Or do we go with the latest, roll your own, if it feels good, ah, wonderful, hallelujah, happy clappy. That's what we have to decide. And what I will gently suggest to you all is talk up churches that are serious about the Ten Commandments 
or the Torah. I mean, I, various ways it's said. But understand that the rules that God gave us are not mutable. That's what the metaphor is of carved in stone. It's carved in stone. It does not change. It is eternal. And if somebody comes to you and says, you're sinning here, go back to the Torah and say, show me where my sin is in the Torah. Or the New Testament, it's all the same. doesn't matter. Show me where my sin is. And what will wind up happening in about 90% of the cases is they can't. Because it doesn't exist. It is a non-sin. It is a sin in this made-up secular religion of a secular revival. Find people and churches that teach sound doctrine and don't have rainbow flags out in front. I'm very serious. The folks with rainbow flags think they have good hearts, and I'm sure they're very tender and very kind-hearted and all that kind of stuff. Nice people. But the point is, they are of no use in this particular fight. The ones that are useful in this particular fight are the ones that adhere to the Ten Commandments as written in stone. Shama